Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics. I'm Fran Tonkis from the LSC Cities Research Centre and the Department of Sociology, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all tonight to this LSE Works event on better growth, better climate. So we're making big promises this evening. Uh, this event forms part of the LSE Works series. This was founded in 2011, and the aim of this series is to explore the implications of the work of LSE research centres and institutes, uh, particularly in respect of public policy. So trying to create that interface between academic research and uh, the world of policy intervention. This, uh, tonight's event is the third in the current series. Next week we have another lecture coming up uh, delivered by our colleagues in LSE Health and Social Care featuring Mara Aroldi and Gwyn Bevan. But tonight we're thinking about cities, climate and economies. I'll introduce shortly the first of our speakers, and he will say more about the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, which forms the, the basic source for tonight's event. This is a major international initiative to analyze and communicate the economic benefits and also the costs of acting on climate change. It's chaired by former president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon, and uh, it, it is also headed by Professor Nicholas Stern um, of this parish, the head of the uh, Grantham Research Institute here at the LSE. The NCE Cities Research Strand was led by LSE Cities and has resulted in the um, uh, report on better growth, better climate, which we'll be speaking about tonight. The format will be uh, three speakers. Firstly, Graham Floater will, will talk about the substance of the research, the report, and the work of the Commission. He'll be followed by Philip Rohde, and then Dimitri Zangelis will conclude with some comments and raise some questions before we open it for discussion to the floor. I'll introduce each of the speakers singly as they approach the rostrum. Uh, and firstly, it's my pleasure to welcome Graham F uh, Floater to begin this evening's events. Graham is uh, a member of the LSE Cities research team. He's a former advisor to the UK Prime Minister and was a senior official at HM Treasury. Um, while in his capacities in government, he served under Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and David Cameron. So there's rather a lot to, to blame him or, or thank him for variously. Uh, he has particular interests in international trade, in finance and market analysis, and also in smart cities, which is his particular contribution to the work of LSE Cities. And he's currently co-director of the um, NCE Cities program for the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, the new climate economy strand of the work, with particular reference to cities. So I'll invite Graham to come up and to speak for about 20 minutes, and then we'll go on with our other speakers. Graham Floater. Thank you very much, Fran, and a uh, pleasure to be here, um, as always, um, particularly presenting with uh, Philip and Dimitri, uh, who are uh, both entertaining speakers. Um, I will try to keep up with them uh, uh, tonight. Uh, I realise that even though I managed to dress down tonight by not wearing a tie, Dimitri has still gone one better and is wearing his familiar red jumper. Uh, so uh, there's nothing I can do when it comes to the style stakes. I'd like to kick off tonight to talk about the, uh, uh, the New Climate Economy Project, which is the flagship project of the Global Commission uh, on the Economy and Climate. 
Uh, and the purpose behind it uh, was a realization uh, that uh, there is at least a perception of a conflict between, on the one hand, economic growth, and on the other hand, uh, tackling climate change. Uh, that is often a false perception, uh, but nonetheless, there are some real challenges when it comes to uh, uh, understanding uh, and also steering uh, the global economy in such a way uh, that we can have a better climate as well as better growth. Uh, and as the New Climate Economy Project sets out, one of the most critical and urgent challenges facing countries today is achieving economic prosperity and development while also com combating climate change. That's at the core of what this project uh, is all about. As Franz said, the Global Commission is chaired by Felipe Calderon, former president of Mexico, um, and is composed of 21 global leaders, many of them former presidents and prime ministers from around the world. Um, and that in itself shows the importance that many people uh, are placing uh, on, on this area. Uh, our own uh, Lord Stern uh, here at the LSE uh, chairs the Economic Advisory Panel. Um, there are other prestigious economists on that panel, two uh, Nobel Prize winners. Um, it's commissioned by uh, seven different countries around the world, uh, and there are eight partner research institutes, one of which uh, is LSE Cities here at the London School of Economics. Uh, and many other colleagues at the LSE have also been involved, uh, particularly from the Grantham Research Institute, but also from... Uh, uh, from other parts of the school. And the, the report um, that was produced by uh, our collective work uh, was delivered to the United Nations, to the Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon in September last year uh, by Felipe Calderon there and, and Nick Stern is standing there on the, on the left. Uh, but what was in that report? What was it that we were actually trying to tackle? Well, there were a number of... Uh, familiar questions, familiar at least to those of us who have been working in this area for some time. Um, I won't go through all of these, but they are still important questions, and they are questions uh, that keep changing. They change because um, po the policy landscape changes, uh, because uh, the level of carbon emissions uh, change, because economic, global economic conditions change. And of course, uh, there is a lot of uncertainty in the world at the moment. Uh, in all of these different areas. But what really made this project uh, different uh, from, from many of the other projects that had gone before was the question of urbanisation. And really, this had never been tackled, at least at this scale uh, or in this way, uh, before. And our exam question, when we were first asked to come along and, uh, and participate uh, in, the, uh, in the project was how do we urbanise the next billion people while cutting urban emissions per capita to two tonnes? Now, that question changed as the project went along, but it gives a flavour for uh, what we were trying to take on. So in order to understand that question before we come to a solution, um, we have to understand a little bit about cities and their role in the global economy. Um, and some might say, and some did say at the beginning of this project, well, what have cities got to do with the global economy? Uh, isn't that all run by national leaders and in international institutes um, like the IMF uh, and the World Bank? But of course, cities are hubs of economic growth. That is where much of economic growth 
happens. Why? Because people aggregate in cities to exploit efficiencies. That's why cities exist. That's why we're here tonight. That's why so many of you are packed in relatively densely, not too densely, I hope, uh, into into this hall and not dispersed uh, across the countryside. Cities are also home to agglomeration effects that raise productivity as those people and firms meet and they share knowledge and they innovate together. And that's what creates uh, uh, growth, uh, particularly in a modern economy. And we see that in developed countries, uh, the rural to urban transition uh, has been uh, at the heart of their development. We're seeing it also now in developing countries. Um, China that always has the most astronomical figures, whatever you decide to look at, uh, now has 100 cities uh, that uh, uh, have income over $6 trillion, and that's more than Germany and France combined. So there is a lot going on in these cities from an economic perspective. Cities, of course, are also hubs of regional growth as well. And if we look through history, back in history, we see that uh, urbanisation and economic development have gone hand in hand. There are some blips and some zigzags and some changes along the way, but on the whole, the two go hand in hand. As, as countries urbanise, uh, they grow richer. And it's not just in history that this is important, but it's important right now. We are in the middle of a relatively unprecedented uh, uh, stage in uh, human development um, where urbanisation uh, is occurring at uh, an extremely rapid rate. Um, we project, or the UN projects, that um, the urban population will grow by around a billion people over the next 15 years and 2.5 billion by 2050. That's an awful lot of people that are coming into cities and putting a huge amount of pressure uh, on infrastructure, on services, and so on. And as Joseph Stiglitz has said, two forces will shape the 21st century. Urbanisation, particularly in China, and technological innovation in the US. So as part of our analysis, we looked at cities around the world uh, with a population of uh, above uh, 500,000, half a million, um, and we found that those cities, um, through, uh, uh, through uh, 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 the analysis, will contribute around 64% of total global GDP growth out to 2030. That's total global GDP growth, not urban GDP growth. Okay. Um, and this is a map of the cities that um, we included in, in our analysis. And we found that of those cities, there were three groups in particular that are going to be important, particularly important, for global growth and uh, also carbon emissions. The first group are emerging cities. These are middle-income cities uh, with a population above a million, um, and they are displaying very rapid growth. Think China, think India, think uh, uh, other areas of the developing world. Um, this is a very, very rapid rate uh, of increase. The second group are the global megacities, of which there are 33, on our definition anyway. Uh, these are cities with a population above 10 million. Um, they are middle to high income, um, and they tend to display strong growth, partly because they are already um, very strong economically on the whole. 
Um, and mature cities are the third group. Mature cities are the backbone of the economies in North America and in Europe. Uh, these are the cities above a million uh, that are high income, uh, that already have uh, high income levels and already have high uh, carbon emissions, um, and are displaying variable growth. Some of them are growing well, uh, not as quickly as, uh, as many of the developing uh, uh, country cities, of course, because uh, they're at a, a higher base. But nonetheless, some of them are growing relatively rapidly. Others are stagnating. So it's a mixed story. And if we look at those three groups of cities and we combine them, we find that just 468 cities around the world will contribute over 60% of global GDP growth and over 50% of carbon emissions growth out to 2030. So you can see here behind me um, the grey bars um, are uh, indicating um, uh, GDP growth, and you can see there uh, that 61 signifies 61% uh, uh, of uh, global GDP growth, and the black bars are the carbon emissions growth. And you can see that black bar much, much higher than the other groups. The other cities there, the second uh, set of bars, uh, much, much lower. Uh, and even in small urban areas where we are projecting to see uh, a, a very high rate of population growth, uh, nevertheless will not lead to the sorts of uh, uh, income growth or, or carbon emissions growth as those 468 cities. That's not to say that other parts of the world uh, don't matter. They do. But if we want to target those areas that are most important right now for making a difference... Um, there's probably no better place to start than those 468 cities. And if we, uh, if we break it down a little bit, through our analysis we looked at the different sectoral splits and projected what the growth would be in those different sectors. We see that, for instance, in those emerging cities, um, the uh, industry sector, the second one there uh, from the left, uh, is going to see enormous growth from about 3.7 trillion US dollars in gross value added uh, today to over 11 trillion uh, by 2030. So that gives a flavour, a background, if you like, to, uh, to what uh, the challenge is. Um, and much of the work that we did was really just understanding uh, what the challenge is. Um, and I'd like to thank Roxana and, uh, and Bruno and, and Nicholas uh, and others who were involved in that work. It was uh, a huge piece of work, and, and so thank you for that. So we're looking at a world under business as usual of uh, city growth uh, and, and city carbon emissions. Um, but there are costs involved as well. There are economic costs as well as those carbon costs. And there are social costs. And the important thing for us to realize is that policy choices today will have... Uh, a real impact on uh, uh, the world of tomorrow because particularly in cities the choices that are made will lock in the urban form of cities for the future not just next year or in 10 years but for centuries to come if you think of the urban plan of London uh, much of it hasn't changed for centuries if you lock in an urban form that is inefficient in terms of energy use you're going to get higher carbon emissions if you lock in uh, inefficient uh, uh, infrastructure for transport, people will not be able to travel around at speed. 
get to where they need to go to, or simply walk around the corner uh, to be able to, to do their work. Um, and that creates inefficiencies. That reduces productivity. It is not just an energy and a climate uh, question. It is an economic question. And the risk is particularly high for those fast-growing emerging cities because if you take India, 75% of their buildings and infrastructure in 2050, that will exist in 2050, hasn't been built yet. So we've got a real opportunity to determine how many of these cities are going to look in the future. I say we, I mean those policymakers that are in places like China and India and others. But I'm also talking about policymakers who are here in London uh, and in uh, the rest of Europe and the United States, where a lot can be done to retrofit cities in a way that makes them more efficient uh, and makes them better suited uh, to tackling climate change. So let's get one thing clear. Much of today's urbanisation is poorly managed. And I think we just need to be frank about that. Uh, and it's potentially locking in economic and climate risks for centuries. And why do I say that uh, much of it is poorly managed? Not all, but much. Because we, we have evidence from many different sources to show uh, that, for instance, the infrastructure gap that exists uh, is going to be a real issue uh, for cities that will not be able to provide the basic services, utilities and infrastructure uh, for that extra billion people who are going to be living in cities um, over the next 15 years. Um, traffic congestion, air pollution, of course, 7 million premature deaths in 2012 from air pollution. Um, that could be avoided with the right sort of policies. If we look at um, the seventh cost here, embedded emissions from urban construction, a lot of cities that are sprawling uh, unnecessarily uh, require huge amounts of concrete and steel, both of which are highly energy intensive and produce a lot of carbon emissions. That could lead alone to 470 gigatons of CO2. That will blow a hole in any global target for climate change. So these are really important choices. Uh, and at the moment, um, business as usual uh, is not going to deliver uh, if we want better growth and better, a better climate. So what can we do differently? Well, um, we propose uh, something that we call the 3C model. This is drawn from uh, uh, knowledge, literature, analysis, um, and expertise uh, that is already out there, uh, but summarized uh, in three uh, simple pillars. Each pillar is highly complex when you unpick it. Um, but in order to uh, allow policymakers to focus on what's important, uh, we came up with these three pillars. And the first is compact urban growth. We shouldn't confuse this with compact urban form necessarily. We're not talking about uh, constraining cities so that they can't expand. Um, often, uh, if you do that, you can get leapfrogging development anyway, and you can actually get um, perverse results. But what we are talking about is that there should be a managed expansion of cities such that there are relatively high densities, there are mixed neighbourhoods, people can walk, it's at a human scale, and that there is redevelopment of those brownfield sites that are already there rather than going out further afield uh, and creating more sprawl. The second is connected infrastructure. Smarter public transport, cycling, car sharing, etc. And Philip will be talking more about that later. 
And the two, as Philip will explain, are very much interconnected. And the third, and this is really important, is coordinated governance. Um, Because it is through policy choices that changes will be undertaken. And, And in many cases, policy is not coordinated either within administrations or between different levels of government. Um, and uh, many times the policy instruments that are most effective uh, are not being used or or are in conflict with policy instruments that are being used at different uh, levels of government. So that's the 3C model. Just as an example of compact urban growth, we can see um, that new development in London uh, has been relatively compact. This is new floor space, Uh, between 2004 and 2011 and you can see that it has been done in a relatively compact way and that's retrofitting an existing city so uh, it can be done and that's related to that connected infrastructure Um, it's one thing to have uh, uh, higher density but higher densities where higher densities around public transport routes is the most efficient and effective way to get people around a city and for you and I to go and enjoy uh, a night at the theatre uh, or, or even coming to a lecture like this one. And we can see in places like Hong Kong and Copenhagen uh, the density of building tends to be around those transport routes. So it's easy to get to transport and it's easy to get to work from your transport and back again. Um, and it's because of these that some, uh, uh, an old study, um, and uh, uh, this is a call for researchers to go out and, and update this kind of work, uh, showed that Copenhagen transport costs were about 4% compared to Houston's 14%, simply because of the urban form and the infrastructure. And in terms of governance, um, well, we've talked about multi-level governance, absolutely key. It also requires city leadership. If you don't have a strong mayor and a strong team in the city, um, things will not happen. And it requires a certain degree of fiscal control, and I think national governments have to accept that, um, even though they might be uncomfortable about it. Uh, It's no good uh, leaving the responsibility uh, uh, to city governments to sort out planning, but on the other hand, uh, provide them with no devolved fiscal powers. Transparency and accountability are going to be key to this, and I um, am not underestimating the challenge there, but it is something that needs to be done. We are seeing some steps in the right direction in terms of e-governance in in certain countries. Um, uh, India has been uh, pioneering some of this. Um, And integrated policy programs. Again, cities are very complex, and it is no good trying to uh, have a reductionist solution uh, where one department is sorting out one problem somewhere, another department somewhere else. It has to be an integrated approach. And if we look at some of the benefits of that 3C model, um, some of the uh, analysis that uh, we commissioned showed that in the US alone, uh, they could actually save $200 billion a year from reduced subsidies in sprawl. Um, that is what it costs. Uh, the U.S. in terms of uh, sprawl today. Um, We also looked at uh, impacts on productivity. Um, There's a whole story about the way in which Chinese cities have been expanding uh, and where the incentives have really been in the wrong place. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that later on. And, of course, the health benefits um, and lower carbon emissions. So um, part of the analysis that we did looked at um, how many tonnes of CO2 could be reduced just through global transport uh, policies. 
um, and it could reduce about 1.5 billion tonnes. Relatively small compared to the bigger picture, um, but still a very important piece uh, of the solution. Some cities that are taking the lead, or taking a lead at least, um, we can see them in different parts of the world. They tend to be uh, in more developed countries, but there are examples uh, like in Bogota where there have been successes, for instance in the Transmillennio uh, project uh, where the number of passengers using public transport has gone up, traffic fatalities have gone down. Uh, in Copenhagen we've seen carbon emissions coming down uh, whilst uh, they've had uh, uh, gross value-added income going up. Um, and so we see some of these, what you might call, decoupling patterns going on. We need a lot more research and a lot more understanding to determine the cause and effect and whether these are really due to policies. Uh, I suspect that some of them genuinely are. Um, but that's an area where really we ought to do some more work. So just to wrap up my part of this evening, um, the recommendations of the Global Commission uh, for Cities were sixfold. Um, first of all, better urbanisation, um, uh, better urban development. And it needs to be uh, not just about cities doing this, but it needs to be a central element of national economic development strategies. Uh, and this is one of the problems we face today, this uh, differentiation between uh, what happens at the uh, city policy level or the regional policy level um, and the national policy level. It needs to be nationwide. This is important for national economic growth and therefore needs to be coordinated. Nonetheless, at the same time, we need to give cities the, uh, the autonomy that they require to make the decisions for themselves where necessary, and that includes fiscal autonomy. We need uh, pricing to uh, price the negative externalities uh, of air pollution, of carbon emissions, and so on. We need to redirect investment. That does not mean extra costs necessarily, what it does mean is we should stop uh, placing our investment in more sprawl, uh, which actually will lead to lower economic uh, growth in some cases, in many cases possibly, um, and certainly higher carbon emissions. Um, but it's, uh, it's also about taking that money and uh, using it more wisely in terms of smart infrastructure and so on. Planning and govern governance are absolutely key. Um, and is probably one of the biggest weaknesses out there, uh, but cannot be ignored, and also financing models. We do need to include a whole range of financing models, whether it's multilateral development banks helping cities in developing countries uh, instead of uh, building roads, uh, building smarter infrastructure so that people can get around. Uh, it's also about uh, financing models that include the private sector uh, when used wisely. So those are the recommendations. Um, I will leave it there and uh, look forward to some of your questions later on. And now I'll hand back to Fran and Philip. Thank you very much. Thank you, Graham. I also look forward to your facing uh, some of the questions later on. I'd now like to introduce our sp second speaker for this evening, Philip Rode, who is Executive Director of LSE Cities, uh, where he is a Senior Research Fellow. 
Uh, Philip has a planning and engineering background, and as a researcher and consultant in recent years, he has been directing interdisciplinary projects dealing with issues of urban governance, transport, city planning, and urban design, and he'll be speaking to some of those themes this evening. Uh, Philip directs the strand of research within LSE cities looking at issues of cities and climate change, and he is co-director, together with Graham Floater, uh, for the Cities Workstream for the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate. Philip's also executive director of the Urban Age Programme, which has been running now um, here at the LSE for 10 years, and as many of you will know, is um, a series of conferences and associated events, activities, awards, and research projects, which bring together political leaders, city mayors, urban practitioners, private sector representatives, and indeed academics um, in over a dozen world cities over the last 10 years. So, Philip, may I hand the floor to you? Thank you very much, uh, Fran. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to have such a turnout tonight, uh, and I look already forward to uh, a more engaging back-and-forth conversation after we have also heard from uh, Dimitri. Now, I will build on what uh, Graham just uh, illustrated and use the specific example of transport and urban form uh, in drilling deeper into uh, this issue of a new climate economy and how cities play a particular role in that regard. I'm going to structure my talk into four relatively equal parts. I'll first introduce what we consider urban accessibility pathways, critical combinations of how we move in cities, the transport infrastructure on the one hand, and on the other hand, the urban form, the overall structure of the city. These come together, and it's important that we raise awareness of the two belonging together. I will then talk about the implications of these different transport urban form pathways, talk a bit about current patterns of development, both spatial development and transport uh, patterns, to finish up with how we enable better urban accessibility. Now, before going there, let me just sort of wear the hat of a sort of climate change uh, person, talking about transport. Transport plays a particular role as part of our policies concerning or tackling uh, global climate change. It's 23% of energy-related carbon emissions globally. It's the most fast, the fastest growing emission. And if we are uh, going ahead with a business-as-usual scenario, we are going to double the emissions by 2050. Now, that so far includes all transport-related emissions. If we are looking at the urban component, which is by far the largest uh, component of transport emissions, we're talking about 10 billion trips in cities worldwide, and these are increasingly being motorized. And this statistic of the EU27 member state uh, is very important to, once again, stress the dynamics of carbon emission growth related to transport. Uh, these are nation states which are highly urbanized, typically in the region of 60 to 80 percent, and where we have seen over the last 20 years significant policy efforts to reduce carbon emissions, which with some successes in areas such as energy, households, and industry, but transport is just going through the roof. Appropriately, it's referred to as the make and break of the cl uh, global climate change agenda. For urbanists, transport plays another role. 
And this is quite central. I'm going to illustrate that with a bit of a historic uh, discussion here. Uh, transport determines how cities are shaped, certainly physically shaped. If we're thinking of the main transport innovations that happened over the last 200 uh, years, we can see how certain key moments of interventions have considerably uh, shifted the development of cities. Take Victorian London. It would have been impossible to expand the city with terrace houses, as we're seeing here, without steam and the railways. And in the early 20th century, the electric city, with the introduction of streetcars and the elevator, uh, produced another typology of more urban, more cleaned up, at least locally, uh, urban experiences. Later on, the 20th century have seen, has seen motorization and the oil car nexus, producing what some refer to as the car-oriented city. Arguably, in most places, the car-oriented city has destroyed the city as such and has uh, resulted in a pattern of urban development which often, you know, certainly uh, reduces the soul of what we consider urbanity. Interestingly, today, it's not a direct continuation of these phases of transport innovations. We're actually seeing often a mix, a combination of these different systems informing what is happening in cities today. The extremes still exist. We have the very extreme sprawling setup, such as in cases in the periphery of Mexico City here, which this uh, image so forcefully illustrates. Here we have accessibility primarily provided by private vehicular traffic. The polar opposite, also an extreme, is Hong Kong, where we have hyperdensity assisted by very efficient public transport and a quite significant amount of trips being uh, conducted by walking. Now, there is an interesting discourse around what we now branded urban accessibility pathways, where we can actually detect how cities over the history, slowly sort of evolving from a walking city to a city of more mobility, have faced, in some ways, two main choices, either dispersed car-oriented development or, on the other hand, much more compact public transport-oriented development. This is a very path-dependent development. It's hard to escape, and it's not linear. In fact, it's quite a self-reinforcing uh, cycle of uh, pattern. This is the case for sprawl and automobile dependence. Once you are located anywhere on this chart, we are in a spiral that self-reinforces uh, the dynamics and makes it incredibly difficult to break out of those tendencies. <coughs> There are three central parameters which we need to consider when we are positioning transport, urban form, and then mobility patterns uh, as part of the climate equation. Uh, and here I'm illustrating that with a comparison between Atlanta and Berlin, two cities of relatively similar size, of relatively similar wealth levels, but of course entirely different nexuses of urban form and transport infrastructure. Uh, first of all, there's the footprint, and Atlanta is significantly larger, so more dispersed development. And in red, superimposed, we see the public transport infrastructure, which is minute or relatively small compared to Berlin. Not surprisingly, as a result, the mobility pattern uh, in Atlanta is one where less than 10% walk, cycle, or use public transport, a share that is in Berlin almost at 70%. 
As a result, there are differences in trip lengths, which have um, an impact on the energy equation and therefore also the carbon <coughs> equation, but then also an effect on the modal choice, the kind of vehicles we use to move about, and their environmental impact of these choices of how we move uh, about then maps onto the overall performance of these cities in terms of environmental impact. And of course, the more we move in private motorized modes, we are sort of associating our impact with these far more dramatic carbon emissions or energy requirements. From an urban perspective, this is only half of the story. The other story is the actual space consumption, which is exactly that sort of cyclical relationship where the way we choose to move around uh, determines how much space we need to move around and in turn how much space the city needs to cater for that movement function. Cars at uh, particular higher speeds, 50 kilometers an hour, easily require 160, 70 square meters per person to move one single person. So let's move on and map that onto um, sort of implications for cities. What we're seeing here is the employment density of Greater London indicating the enormous compaction of employment in its centre with more than 140 persons per square kilometre working. This is a function of the deindustrialized city. This is exactly the type of productivity which London is able to provide. The proximity of people working together creates something uh, which is uh, of enormous productivity and value to the economy. How this density relates to how people choose to live is, of course, the central question for transportation, and connecting uh, those two is critical. There is tentative evidence that we will see in the future a far greater synergy of working and living, and that, indeed, the compaction levels we know from employment in the post-industrial city will profit not only for finance, real estate, uh, but also for innovation, for uh, technology, for research and development, will profit from a far greater mixity of those functions. Now, if you want to access these compact, compressed areas of activity, of urban activity, of areas which allow for sociability in cities with cars, you, of course, get, you get congestion. And congestion is a major threat to urban economies. It leads to enormous losses in productivity. In the case of Beijing, there are projections of, that this might be in the region of 15% of GDP. So we are seeing here a very clear indication how the pathway of uh, sort of transport, uh, um, uh, private car-oriented travel, sprawling uh, configurations lead to economic loss and uh, disincent or, or sort of diseconomies of agglomeration. But going beyond a bit sort of the core economic narrative, there's fresh evidence how, for example, uh, different types of neighborhoods and their transport systems impact on issues like traffic fatalities. On this chart for a moment, leave aside the developing world cities and just look at affluent cities, how you have a significant decline of traffic fatalities per 100,000 residents when you move from a car-dependent, sprawling urban environment to a very compact environment, ideally with traffic demand management. Another area that recently gained a lot of attention is public health. 
where we're seeing healthier lifestyles being, of course, promoted in areas where we have opportunities to be physically active, where we don't have to rely on the motor car to move. This is a promotional poster by the Mayor of London a few years back, trying to get us on our bikes, not because of transport, that of course is an underlying agenda, but it is a public health concern that motivated this campaign. At LSE Cities, we have conducted a lot of work in yet again another area, a very complex area of understanding what's happening to our cities in terms of social exclusion. And this is another area where we would probably have tentative evidence already where the dispersed, peripheralized development of many developing world cities in particular, where they are peripheralizing the disadvantage, leads to very regressive forms of urban development replicating, in some ways, income and wealth inequalities by simply limiting access for those disadvantaged groups of society to the common goods, the better schools, health care, public transport, and other important components of public life. Um, so this is important to consider even as part of a social equity agenda. This sort of transport urban form nexus plays a key role. Now having said all this, I think everyone in the room is aware that we still have a very powerful growth narrative around the automobile. And particularly in those countries that are emerging economies, the car industry is, of course, identified as an area where uh, major productivity gains can be have, have and can we have, and where we can also see prosperity being generated. That's a narrative at the national level. It's entirely disconnected from how we solve transport uh, problems in cities. In fact, automobile production almost becomes an end in itself. And we are lacking a proper conversation about uh, it being a means to deliver access from A to B. We try to understand the arguments related to automobile manufacturing and the value it is adding to national economies by you know, exploring these more conventional perspectives on contributions of automobile industries to value add. Uh, in extreme cases, you might reach indeed 3-4% of uh, GDP of a given country. But number one, these are only very few countries. And number two, we simply lack comparative con uh, statistics on alternative forms of accessibility. The public transport sector, how much jobs is it actually creating? The public transport industry. Uh, this is very rare and often does not enter the public policy conversation at national levels, the tick in emerging economies. Now, moving on to the patterns of the things we're actually seeing out there, how the world is currently changing. And very unfortunately, we are in the midst of an enormous, rapidly increasing urban extension. You could call it urban sprawl. From 2000 to 2030, according to these estimates by Karen Seto, who also worked on the IPCC report, we will have a threefold increase of urban land globally. In only 30 years, three times more land for cities and urban regions than anything that we have built up to 2000. 
In parallel of this, and this of course syncs directly with uh, the urban growth perspective, we have an increase and a projected, uh, in fact in some countries, even exponential increase in private motor vehicles. Currently globally at 1 billion, uh, according to this International Energy Agency perspective, going up to even more than 3 billion uh, vehicles. For cities, of course, a major challenge, as I've just shown you. But there are questions about these projections, questions which are related to trends we're already seeing in some OECD country cities. For example, in the United Kingdom, where in black here you can see the traffic uh, and in the colorful lines, the traffic forecasts that were projected at different times. This suggests we are currently in a disruptive phase of development where it's very complicated to actually predict what's going to happen on that front. And an over-reliance on simple sort of, uh, sort of extrapolations of growth curves into the future of car growth obviously results in policy uh, which simply caters for that car growth. Hugely problematic from our perspective. And then there is the consumer's perspective linked also to you know, a societal, uh, societal con uh, perspective on the waste in fuel, cars and roads caused by automobility. Look at the amount of time a car is actually used. Just 2.6% of the time Look at the extremely small amount of the energy we use for automobility that's actually uh, serving the purpose of moving a person from A to B. And then think of even below here the, of the little utilization of the transport infrastructure that provides the space for car mobility, although we do have congestion, but the majority of these infrastructures are entirely underutilized. Uh, that's an inefficiency which, you know, is probably no longer future-proof for a resource-constrained world and possibly also no longer that desirable for an increasing number of consumers. On top of that, we will see technological innovation and possibly disruptive innovation. Whether we will have autonomous vehicles or not, or when, uh, leave it aside. If it does happen... There are enormous efficiencies you can have. Recently, MIT modeled for the city of Singapore that you could have full mobility for that city with just a third of the vehicle fleet that is currently in circulation in that city. And full mobility means that all mobility, that even the mobility on public transport in that city would be covered. Now, this is my final section on policy and, in some ways, enabling uh, the choices or, in some ways, shifting the current choices towards a more compact and connected model of development. Um, you know, this is a wonderful comparison between sort of the capacity and the space consumption you have moving about 100 people in this image, either by public transport or by cars. Unfortunately, the choices across the world are still in favor of uh, the automobile. And it's important to consider this not just as consumer demand or a result of what consumers want, but to consider this as a result of significant policy distortions. Consumer sovereignty, cost bias pricing, policy neutrality, all of these things are not given and in most contexts are shifting they uh, are including a sort of major bias towards automobility. Let me give you a few examples. 
Here we have the UK real cost of transport and income over time. The only means of transport that became cheaper over time is motoring. Buses and coaches became more expensive, rails, rails as well. This is a comparison between the United States and Germany with regards to the highway taxes on the one hand and then uh, the spending with regards to highway infrastructure, which in the 1970s in both countries was one a story of subsidy. Both countries at that uh, stage subsidized highway construction. Now, that no longer is the case in Germany, but in the United States, you had the continuation of that subsidy. And I stress that term. It's very important to understand that it's the public, general public, through all sorts of taxes, supporting that infrastructure and that type of mobility. Now, ending up with cities is maybe a more hopeful perspective because the last few examples often depend on national policy choices. We have seen cities coming forward with considerable innovation in urban transport. That has to do with the fact that urban transport is a classic urban policy sector. Many cities profit from considerable autonomy and freedom with regards to transport. And more importantly, when synchronizing those policies with spatial development, where they have even often greater control, uh, you have, as a result, many of those innovative transport interventions. The first step is, of course, for cities to address the market distortions. And interestingly, they have considerable opportunity to deal with those distortions. Um, Addressing the current restriction on density, mixed use, and multifamily housing is a key one. Uh, Addressing uh, almost perverse issues like high uh, sort of minimum parking requirements for new developments and converting them into maximum uh, requirements. Uh, Tax policies, which are difficult to address when it comes to fuel prices, in many cities can be dealt with certainly through uh, charging for parking. In this very city, of course, through congestion charging. So that's a very important first step. We have also seen technology helping significantly and really scaling a lot of the innovations over the very recent uh, decade. This is an encouraging chart, but I do stress a lot of these things are really taking off because there are technologies around that enable bike sharing or car sharing. It's the mobile phone, the smartphone. Or public transport has become considerably more attractive because of mobile phone applications. And still, if we really were to consider the basics, we need to come back to creating policies that can break the path dependency of some of the uh, trends which I showed in the context of sort of car-oriented sprawling developments. And the bus is one of the best examples of doing this. In Bogota, converting highway infrastructure into high-capacity bus corridors is a prime example. But we don't even have to walk that far or go that far. Just look a bit south uh, of here, uh, the embankment, where uh, in three months' time we will have the uh, inauguration of construction that will convert what was essentially up until now an urban motorway into a very generous uh, cycle superhighway, confirmed only two days ago by the Greater London Authority. So to finish with this image, uh, it's important that we recognize that the solutions are already with us. 
And it's about the coordination, which Graham talked about, a better integration between these systems, and most importantly, a recognition that we cannot deal with transport if we don't recognize spatial planning and how we deal with the design of our streets on the ground. Thank you very much. Thank you, Philip. And I uh, hope that in light of some of the figures Philip was just showing us that none of you have driven your Porsche here this evening. That might have um, been a mistake in emissions terms. Finally, I'd like to welcome Dimitri Zangelis to the stage. Uh, Dimitri is the co-head of climate policy at the Grantham Research Institute here at the London School of Economics. And in this respect, um, this represents a joint enterprise uh, where LSE Cities is combining with the expertise uh, of our colleagues in Grantham. Dimitri is also an associate fellow of the Energy, Environment and Development Programme at Chatham House. And in respect of the, the project which we're speaking about tonight, he's currently chief economist on the new climate economy project. Previously, before coming to the LSE, Dimitri was a senior economic advisor at Cisco and was head of the Stone Review team uh, from 2007 to 2008. And prior to that, he was a senior economist um, in HM Treasury, working in particular on the Stern Review. Dimitri is going to finish with some reflections and to raise some critical questions, which I hope will spur our discussion to go on. Thank you, Fran, and thanks to our two previous speakers for very... Uh, powerful and compelling uh, talk. So it's my role as a discussant to um, sort of be a bit disruptive and to, to, to question and challenge the speakers. And of course, that's very difficult because these are friends and colleagues of mine. I've worked very closely on a lot of this stuff, and I mostly tend to agree with it. If it was just a simple case of uh, critiquing Graham's sartorial aspirations, this, of course, would be very easy, uh, but it's not. So what I'm going to try and do is throw out a few um, challenges both to the speakers but also to the floor, which I think kind of emerged from the discussion that we've, um, that we've just heard. Um, and the first, I think, relates to the fact that we're here at the LSE, uh, and this we've, we've, we've seen two fine presentations that focused on policy, but also focused a lot on the sort of spatial planning design dimensions, the geographic dimensions of this issue. Uh, and yet, it would be, I think, very uh, important to see how we can integrate this into the mainstream economics. Anybody who works on climate change or resource sustainability will know that uh, we really don't have much of a chance of attaining either a two degree target, which is what our politicians have signed up to, or uh, resource sustainability for developing uh, economies if we continue to build our cities in a sprawling, unsustainable manner. Two thirds of the world will live in cities, perhaps more by the middle of this century. If we don't get the cities right, we won't get climate and resources right. And yet, they are completely absent from mainstream uh, economic uh, modelling. And I think, you know, we're here at the LSE, I think the scope for cross-disciplinary co collaboration to try and bring these geographical issues into economics is quite high. Um, you know, shameless plug here, but we kicked the ball, or we, we, we sort of got the ball rolling with a, with a paper we wrote with Philippe Aguillon and some colleagues uh, on uh, some endogenous growth elements to do with path dependency, trying to get the sort of debate into the mainstream economics. Because I think we, over the last few decades, economics has undergone 
undergone a revolution uh, to do with the endogenous growth uh, uh, phenomenon, which basically says that you can treat knowledge capital as a factor of production, and it has certain special qualities. Uh, in particular, that knowledge tends to build on knowledge. Uh, it's hard to unlearn stuff that you've learned. There are spillovers and complementarities. Systems and networks tend to build on systems and networks. So, for example, you invest heavily in computers. Uh, people come up with very smart ideas on how to use them. Therefore, computers become more valuable. Therefore, it makes sense to invest in them, and so on and so forth. And through learning experience uh, and spillovers, the cost of computers come down, and you get an ICT uh, revolution. But I think cities are replete with these kinds of examples that can be integrated uh, into uh, those kinds of uh, modeling exercises. It means that you have path dependency. It means that you have multiple equilibria. That's a pain in the neck for modelers, of course. Um, and it means, perhaps, that you might be better of trying to uh, show that you can design the future than try and deterministically predict it, given that you have these uh, non-stationary non-linearities. But that shouldn't stop us from trying to at least provide stylized theoretical illustrations of a path-dependent world, if it happens to be the case that the world is path-dependent. You don't want economists telling you, well, let's assume it's not. Um, that doesn't help you answer the key questions that policymakers are interested in. Um, so nowhere are questions of path dependency more central than cities. I mean, we live in London. You only have to look at uh, the presence of Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf is there primarily because the Romans designed a street plan that didn't make trading room floors or large trading room floors a viable concept in the city of London. You travel the world and people wear these Mind the Gap t-shirts. Um, they wear those t-shirts because the Central Line and much public transport in London was designed to avoid paying rent to private landlords so it followed public streets. Uh, because these streets were curved, again because of the Romans, somewhat uncharacteristically given their reputation, because these streets were curved, uh, you ended up having trains not aligning with platforms. You need announcements that go mind the gap. 2,000 years ago, decisions made by you know, Centurion are determining our fashion and financial trading room decisions. So if you lock into the wrong... I mean, these are sort of you know, colourful examples. But what I'm trying to say here is if you lock into the wrong kind of infrastructure, uh, you could pay for it for many, many years. So delaying and locking into carbon-intensive infrastructure at an urban level, at a time when uh, there is vast urbanisation in countries like India and China and other developing parts of the world, could be a very costly mistake and put paid to our carbon and resource ambitions. And yet, economic models have nothing to say about it. And I think we are in exactly the right place to start saying something uh, about some of, these, uh, some of these issues. So that's my first sort of challenge out there to all you kind of uh, uh, economists here at the London School of Economics. The second is that there wasn't much mention here of innovation. If we're going to decouple resource use uh, from consumption uh, and growth, we need to innovate. Uh, and cities, again, in principle, are prone to substantial gains from innovation. Cities are a sort of mix of diverse and specialised concentration of people, which induces a lot of innovation. But there is further scope to use these kind of smart concepts, you know, smart grids, smart urban designs. Um, there's a lot of money being put in by multinationals, Cisco and IBM and Siemens and others, on this whole question of integrated technologies, which uh, should help make dense, uh, complex cities work more efficiently. If you think about it, cities are essentially tightly integrated systems with inputs and outputs and throughputs and human beings. Uh, and that means that you've got scope for all sorts of managed automated but also interpersonal uh, relationships to do with smarter grids, 
smarter healthcare, smarter public safety, smarter buildings, uh, and smarter uh, energy management. The idea being that cities that in real time think, they adapt, they evolve, uh, will be in a better position to optimize their resources in terms of food or energy or health. Uh, or indeed interpersonal communications and climate. But how do we turn this sort of smart dream and these kind of you know, uh, catchphrases into reality? There's been a lot more talk about smart cities than there has been actual deployment, and I think um, that would be an interesting discussion to have. We can see the opportunities and the potential. Why aren't we realizing them? A third challenge to throw out there is, um, and it's probably a, a response that some of you in the room will have, namely that it's all very well to talk about rich cities in particular reducing their, their, their carbon production, but what about all this offshoring uh, of carbon emissions that takes place because uh, you know, people in rich cities uh, go about consuming stuff which they just simply import from uh, East Asia, and they basically uh, uh, the, the, these numbers are scored on the production of China and other, and other countries. Um, I think it's a serious question, but I, to me it's a logical non sequitur when it comes to questions of designing cities so that they're denser with the use of public transport uh, and with recycled resources and renewable energy. Uh, unless you can show that somehow moves to reduce uh, the production of emissions in cities somehow induces or causes uh, extra consumption and people to go out and buy more iPhones, and there may be a bit of a rebound effect, but I doubt it's that prominent, then I see no reason why you shouldn't go ahead and try and reduce domestic production of emissions whilst also seeking to reduce consumption, which kind of leads to the next uh, challenge I want to throw out there, which is, well, to the extent that consumption of uh, manufactured goods and other offshore emissions is probably outside the purview of, uh, of, of you know, regional and local governments, because it's to do with trade deals and climate deals and so on, what can we say about the relationship between institutions and governance at the local and at the national level? I think one of the things we've seen over the last few decades is, uh, to some extent, a degree of disappointed ambition at the national and at the multilateral level, um, counterpoised against substantial progress in ambition uh, at the urban level. Cities have in many ways shown the way. I, you know, uh, Copenhagen is now talking about being zero carbon in its production, and this makes a difference, right? Uh, you have cities in primarily Europe, you know, rich advanced world cities in Europe, in Asia, which have per capita emissions, many of them, most of them, including this one, in the range 5 to 10 in terms of production per, per, per capita. You have sprawling cities in mostly in North America, in Australia, other rich world countries, which are car-based, sprawling uh, model, which have emissions per head of 10 to 20 uh, uh, tons per capita. This is a proxy for all sorts of resource use, right? And it shows that we're not talking here about you know, maybe 10 20% more. We're talking about cities of similar size, similar levels of wealth and income, orders of magnitude difference in their resource uh, and carbon uh, intensity. So it makes a difference how you design cities. And I think the kind of the question of uh, leadership, which uh, both Graham and Philip talked about, of uh, institutions of devolved local powers and fiscal autonomy to enable local authorities and, and local governments to undertake uh, as much effective policy action as they can is very important because you know, affecting such action is often much easier at the uh, local and city uh, levels where policymakers are closer both physically but also culturally 
uh, to their electorates and therefore held more accountable. You know when your parks are a mess. You know when your rubbish is not being picked up. You know when your, your, you know, your, your public transport doesn't work or your, your water is cut off. And you know exactly uh, who to blame. But there are limits to that, like we said already. And there needs to be something uh, to be said about where you draw the line between uh, local powers and how you enable those powers and what the relationship is between uh, local and city governance systems and their national and indeed multilateral um, compatriots and how you get the, uh, the, uh, the greatest influence out of that. So I think those would be the sort of four challenges I would throw out there. Economics, innovation, uh, offshore consumption, and then this question of institution and governance. And like I said, that's, that's questions for everybody on the floor. I'm, I'm, the aim here is to try and spur discussion rather than sort of muckrake uh, uh, my excellent colleagues' uh, presentations. Thank you. Thank you, Dimitri. Uh, we have just about 20 minutes left for questions and discussion, so I want to turn it over to the floor as soon as possible. But before I do, would either Graham or Philip like to respond to any of the um, collegial provocations that Dimitri has raised? <laughs> Um, no, not really. <laughs> uh, certainly not the sartorial question. Um, look, I think uh, you know, Dimitri uh, puts his finger on a number of really important issues. I mean, the issue around uh, how we can integrate uh, a different approach, a more comprehensive approach, uh, into the way in, in which we undertake economic analysis uh, is a really tough challenge. And it's a challenge that... Uh, as an economist, uh, I would like to see uh, taken on. Um, and uh, the, other, uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, your point at the end there, uh, uh, Dimitri, about institutions, we, we really can't say enough about the importance of governance. And we shouldn't underestimate the challenge that we face. Uh, not just in those areas of the world where perhaps through prejudice we believe uh, that uh, it's more difficult to get things done, uh, but you know, even closer to home, uh, in our own countries, uh, everywhere, there are real challenges that governments face, uh, and that is something that needs to be addressed. It's not easy, but it's something that needs to be addressed. Yes, uh, I'm going to pick the innovation bit, uh, Dimitri, where I uh, completely share this observation that there is frustration out there, particularly amongst uh, sort of industry leaders, that it's sort of not uh, picking up and that we are not innovating enough. I would challenge that perspective. I think it has a lot to do with what kind of um, smart city uh, uh, technologies uh, people would like to see. I mean, if you just think about the examples I referred to in the context of transport, um, how considerably different uh, it is nowadays how we move, all of us, uh, in London compared to five, seven, eight years ago uh, with these uh, smartphone applications. This is just um, often not part of sort of the more classic smart 
smart city proposition. But in fact, it's at the center of it. And so I would blame primarily sort of very entrenched industry in, uh, uh, interests of very particular industries that are probably also losing out uh, that sort of create this idea that, you know, somehow this is not happening. It's happening so rapidly. And our pattern of moving in cities has already been altered uh, significantly by, by those, you know, um, bubbling up innovations. Mm. Okay, let me uh, turn to the floor. We have some roving mics. I think I don't have a mic, but that doesn't matter. If Could I have an indication of people who would like to comment or question? And may we take two or three in the round? Okay. Thank you very much for your very, very informative talk. My name is Toshi from University of Westminster, majoring in economic policy. And my question is about the private financing, about uh, how to mobilize the private finance for the sustainable, sustainable urbanization. Which policy of demand pull or the production push or both, what kind of policy do you think is most like, effective and efficient in order to mobilize effectively the private finance? to this kind of policies. Thank you very much. Thank you. And could we take the question from the gentleman behind? Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how this might be financed. So it, thinking about um, my city of New York and how some transport changes have been financed, for example, City Bike, our bike share program, is, a very, is relatively small geographically in many of the areas that, the city, that it could be serving most effectively where people are far from the subway are the areas that don't have it because they're not politically powerful and because it's advertising supported and Citibank doesn't want to pay for ads in Brownsville, Brooklyn but it does in Midtown, where subways are every two blocks. And if you also look at the development of the subway, it's similar with value capture. That's building more subways in Midtown, but not out in eastern Queens, which is a part of the city that's very car dependent, but also quite dense. Do you want to respond to those twin questions on financing? Who goes first? Should I kick the ball rolling? Mm. Um, so two very good questions. I mean, so yeah, there are various, in terms of mobilizing private funds, I think the overarching element that you need to galvanize investors is policy credibility. Um, it almost, and I, you know, I say almost, but it almost doesn't matter what the policy is. If it's long-term and credible, um, then private investors and innovators will do what they need to do uh, to make sure that they supply the goods and services required to bring about that policy. Um, so one of the most important things in terms of lowering the cost of capital and galvanizing investment is uh, reducing policy doubt and making clear what your policy objectives are. Um, that's the only way, really, that, that entrepreneurs are going to get up in the morning and say, OK, I'm going to risk my capital in this. So it's a sort of generic, high-level answer. Um, and there are, there are many different policies that you would apply to different market failures. Pricing, obviously, is a very good way of sending market signals. But sometimes there are non-price-sensitive sectors, uh, which is why you have inefficiency and waste. So maybe standards and regulations are important. Again, they have to be credible. Uh, or you might want to uh, talk about uh, public support for things which have uh, public spillovers, like research, you know, first uh, initial level research and development, for example. Um, so there's different policies to match different market failures. But again, if they're not believed or if they're seen to be temporary and about to be reversed, um, most sensible investors will either not move or they'll demand very high risk premium before they do move. Um, 
you know, on the specifics of bikes and, and, and value capture, I mean, to some extent, you need to start a network somewhere, and you'll probably start it uh, in the central, densest, and most uh, uh, profitable part. But to the extent that there needs to be public support to enable certain network externalities that those um, providers can't capture, then that is um, that, that there is a sort of uh, a prior case there for policy support. Um, so I, th- I think that's right. I think um, it, it, this has to be a mix. Where there are market failures and externalities, it has to be a mix of policy signals and strong policy signals to galvanize as much private investment as possible. Well, the first thing I'd say is that LSE should invest in more microphones, but uh, uh, I, uh, I, I can manage to use this one. Um, yeah, I mean, a very good question. Because it's a real market failure if you don't get the spillovers from Graham's wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, first, the first response I would have is don't always necessarily think that uh, every uh, problem requires finance as a solution. Yeah. Um, there are uh, there are other policy levers that can be used, whether it's subsidies or reduction in uh, in perverse subsidies, whether it's regulation, uh, whether it's information. Um, I mean, I remember when uh, we were in uh, when I was working in uh, in uh, government, uh, and we were interested in how we could get information out to people so that they could understand that. Uh, insulating their loft or insulating uh, their their walls would save them money because at the time most people didn't even realise that. Um, so um, uh, information uh, asymmetries, imperfect information, uh, is something that uh, government intervention can can address uh, and is uh, is free or or, uh, or at least cheap. Um, procurement, of course, is a major. Uh, potential policy lever for cities. Certain cities, like here in London, uh, have huge budgets into the billions of of pounds or dollars. Um, And that is a real incentive um, uh, that can be used for the private sector uh, to come in uh, and find solutions. Uh, You can actually create entirely new markets through procurement. If you think about electric buses, Uh, the private sector would not simply come out to produce electric buses necessarily, given the upfront costs of uh, research and development uh, and possibly the the, uh, higher costs, at least in the early stages of of operations. But if a government comes along and says, this is the market, it's electric buses or no buses, then the private sector has something to respond to and gives them an incentive uh, to, uh, uh, to make a profit, whilst at the same time addressing a market failure. Um, uh, public-private partnerships um, uh, can work, can work extremely well. Um, they have to be uh, very carefully crafted, um, uh, but there are um, numerous success stories uh, where putting a small, a relatively small amount of upfront funding from the public sector allows uh, to just take away sufficient risk to the private sector uh, that they will move in. And you can, you can leverage six or seven or even more times uh, the amount of funding uh, from the private sector that way. 
Um, to give one example, in Stockholm, we've seen uh, at the Royal Seaport a new innovative area where they're wanting to experiment with a, a new smart grid. Um, the national government are coming in uh, with funding where uh, if you put in a million uh, dollars then, or half a million dollars, uh, then um, uh, private sector companies will come in and match that funding and also provide their R&D. And the final thing I would say is knowledge sharing is enormously important. And those areas where we've seen most success in cities uh, uh, for rolling out innovation of this type comes from bringing private sector, research institutes, and the public sector together to crack problems that not one of them could solve by themselves. And that requires city leadership in order to get people together uh, and solve the problem. So there, there is no one solution. Uh, I'm sure Philip can tell you more about the, uh, the uh, Hong Kong method of, um, uh, uh, of using, uh, uh, using de uh, uh, development incentives along uh, public transport routes. Um, there are many different forms, and there is no one set solution for any particular city. There are a lot of policy instruments out there, though, that could be used. Philip, can you extend the uh, city bike share scheme for us, or <laughs> is that beyond even your capability? No, yeah, well, it's beyond my capabilities, <laughs> clearly. Um, so uh, the New York uh, uh, case is, is uh, troublesome. I mean, it, it is a reality that uh, this scheme is really rolled out in areas where people are asking for it and where, uh, you know, the uh, investors into the scheme can see that uh, they get returns. Um, I'm, I'm sometimes puzzled by this question about finance because one of the central arguments which we're trying to uh, talk about here is that uh, a shift towards a more compact and connected form of mobility is actually more cost efficient. And we have seen very, very uh, powerful shifts of budgets, of existing budgets without adding uh, sort of additional even private finance, making huge differences to the Bogota uh, scheme, for example, the BRT scheme, where uh, this is uh, sort of shifting money away from highway uh, building, road building, uh, and putting it into public transport. And I think uh, being very much aware of um, you know that shift in itself being being an important tool, I sometimes wonder whether sort of opening up these so-called uh, innovative finance routes basically are a form of shying away from sort of the real structural uh, change that is uh, is required. Um, London is another good example. If we look at the uh, infrastructure investments into cycling over 10 years, almost 1 uh, billion. This is money which in other cities go into conventional road building. Um, and it cannot go into conventional road building because in London there is not enough overall money for that. Now, the road lobby is complaining, but you know I think this creates a very interesting dynamic in itself. Thank you. Uh, we have a few questions here in the middle, which is more evidence, I think, for the knowledge effects of agglomeration. <coughs> If you can show your hands again, yes, in the, in the middle there. Hey, thank you guys so much. I wanted to ask a bit more about the private sector, but in a non-finance specific way. So what do you see as the role of the private sector within a city to influence that city's smart growth and policy moving forward, maybe separate from just investing in infrastructure, but kind of pushing forward those policies? Okay. And your neighbor to along to your left. Um, thank you for the talks. Uh, I happen to be involved in one of those mythical smart cities at the moment because uh, you know I'm involved in a partnership between universities and 
private sector organizations working with the city council at Milton Keynes, and we're looking at how a smart city will come through. And one of the things that's, uh, that I think is quite significant there is we know so much more about how citizens ever use the city than we did before. Right. Uh, you know, all sorts of new kinds of data, some of which is crossing the line, possibly, in terms of privacy and things like that. But I didn't hear you folks talk about the role of uh, information and data. Perhaps you use the innovation word, but you didn't talk about that. And I'm just curious whether you think that, uh, you know, from an economist's uh, perspective, whether uh, data and information and new ways of understanding things, especially because one of the things that happens in Milton Keynes is, is that this data, either we didn't know before, uh, and we're knowing it for the first time, which is how a citizen might actually use, a, uh, use the water supply or, or the city. But also, maybe that information was known, but it wasn't shared outside a very small community. Mm -hmm. And now we can share that. So I'm just curious if, if uh, those impacts were things that came up in your work. Okay. And at the back of this section. Hi. Um, I just want to talk about like the urban sprawl versus the idealized urban growth that you talked about. Um, you said that Houston uses 14% of its GDP on public transport, but then it's defined as a car city. So I just want to know like how cities like this negotiate that boundary or how can they adapt to a more ideal model. Um, and then also there was a part in yours about... Um, Employment being like 141,000 people per square kilometer in London compared to residents being only 27,000. But there's a bit more at play like house prices and things like that that drive people. So what's the role in, of the suburb in all of this? Okay, and conscious of time, I will ask just to take the one question down the front here. Thank you. Um, this is very much related to those two questions, really. Um, I was taken by the statistic, I sh should stand up, um, that, uh, you know, Three quarters of the growth of the new city development, the urban urbanisation, is yet to come, and I was really just wanted to wanted to ask how good can it get? Um, what you know, what is an idealised model for that future city, and how do cities like London um, fare in comparison to those to those new cities? And are there good examples of of, of really new cities with good models? And can you cope with one last question from the front row here? And then you will be speed responding. In my experience, the investment tail wags the spatial planning dog. And I want to, I would really like to ask, I heard Graham speak about compact urban growth, and you can get compact urban growth on greenfield sites. And no, in my experience, developers, investors always want greenfield sites, don't want brownfield sites. And so I, and you know, there's a huge danger that you could get a whole distortion of spatial development. Okay, thank you all. Um, we are rather pressed for time, so perhaps we could have a division of labour in our responses. We have questions about the non-financing role of private sector actors, uh, the use of data to inform these kinds of efforts, and then a family of questions about sprawl and compaction. Should I take the data one? Do it. Um, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, you know, we, well, we've seen the power of setting data free in this city uh, and, in, and, and in New York as well. I mean, a lot of the apps that Philip referred to were precisely the result of um, 
deliberate decisions here at City Hall to make that data free and available. Um, and I think one of the nice things about doing that is you have these threshold effects. You make the data free and available, people then set up the apps, the apps then become very successful, so you get constituencies and lobbies uh, looking to make more, more data available. And I think one of the kind of elements of lock-in that I didn't talk about is very much behavioural. Um, and I think when it comes to sort of setting data free, um, you can very quickly change behavioral norms in a way that, that propagates further uh, innovation. I think that's massively important. Having the metrics to analyze that data, finding out uh, as a result a whole load of new uh, behavioral characteristics that help you design cities is, I think, a, a, a very dynamic and important part of that process. Shall I... Uh Take your pick. Okay, uh, so uh, from the top, the the private sector question. So um, obviously investment and finance play a a very important role, um, but um, so does expertise, uh, and there is expertise in the private sector uh, that is extremely valuable. Uh, They don't have all the expertise, but if you can bring it together with that from research institutes and the public sector, then it it can be very powerful. Um, If you think about the kind of infrastructure that you need to put in uh, to either redesign a city, or let's say retrofit a city, um, uh, so that it's more efficient, uh, or whether you're building a new city, um, you need construction firms, you need consultants uh, in engineering uh, who understand what is and what isn't possible from an engineering perspective, uh, but you also need the incentives that play on them uh, for them uh, to to uh, to make those uh, to make those uh, the research and development uh, uh, decisions that are required. Um, so those are su- just some of the, the areas where private sector can play a part. Um, I'll, I'll leave the data point, private sector data point, as that's already been taken. So, Philip, you have the spatial mm-hmm. problem, yeah, so sprawl, compaction, and I'm, the greenfield question. Yes, so I'm now um, taking a huge risk talking about house prices um, and uh, trying to answer that uh, question. It is true that probably one of the most uh, serious challenge, the challenge we, we, we should really reflect long about uh, with regard to the sort of compact city model is around housing affordability and London is possibly one of the best examples where this is uh, very much debated. Um, Now, it's of course a very sort of basic economic understanding. If you have more uh, demand than supply, uh, the the price shoots through the roof. Um, There are two uh, answers to uh, the the dynamics uh, here. On the one hand, we have maybe compact city policies which do distort uh, um, the situation and may lead indeed to to higher house prices. On the other hand, we need to be far more careful of simply blaming questions of of limitations to horizontal expansion, uh, the famous green belt. Why? Because, uh, you know, very important supply is not only coming from the horizontal but also from the vertical. And I think the vertical supply question in London is generally entirely avoided for political questions. Uh, No one is sort of sort of very seriously considering questions of uh, intensification of suburban London, although you have enormous underutilization of transport. You know, the, the, the use of the tube in outer London is half in terms of person per uh, uh, mileage compared to New York's subway. So there are real opportunities out there, uh, and there are calculations floating around. If you were to just convert, you know, maybe 20 or 10 percent of uh, semi-detached housing in outer London uh, into a more compact 
urban form, you could accommodate all of London's housing growth. So I think I, I, what I want to send back the message uh, to you about the affordability question is uh, we need to have a far more serious conversation about housing typology and uh, often our uh, conversation in London in particular about where to grow the city is a sort of code to talk about what sort of preferential housing typology and therefore what kind of housing needs to be built and I think this is exactly where far greater flexibility needs to be put forward and we need to show increasingly that good apartment living does not mean it's family unfriendly and this is I think a particular concern for this city Great. Let me just very briefly come back to two other points. So in terms of suburbs, what is their role? Uh, and in terms of building on greenfield sites, in a way you might call that um, you know, different sides of the same coin. But they're not actually. Uh, they're just different elements of a very complex problem. And I think the most important uh, thing uh, to take away from the, the work that we've done here uh, is that there are no simple solutions and simple sound bites. Um, uh, uh, everything is context-specific. So well-managed urban growth uh, should be avoiding exactly what you're talking about, Nikki. Uh, it should be accepting that there are, are existing suburbs in existing cities that can't simply be uh, ignored um, but have to uh, be understood in order to have better managed growth. So it is complex. Uh, we shouldn't look for simplistic sound bites, um, but there are solutions out there city by city, and we should be going out there and looking at them. It's very gratifying to have an economist finish on spatial questions. It's, uh, it speaks of the kind of interdisciplinary work that's being done here. Thank you for your comments and questions from the floor, and thank you all very much for your uh, engagement and participation here tonight. And thank you to our panellists, Graham Floater, Philip Rode. <laughs>